0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs.
1: Welcome to today's session of SACPAW. Um, we're really glad to see a good turnout for this, to, uh, to hear about a topic, the slow food movement, which is a topic I care about a lot. Uh, I'm going to invite you to turn off your cell phones to check that that's done before I do anything else. My name is Muriel Mello, and I teach in Arts and Science, and I'm also the Associate Dean of Arts and Science at the University of Lethbridge. Um, I am pleased to be here. I will let you know that the session today is being recorded for future broadcasts. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Um, I am asked to remind you to pay for lunch, to put $10, we hope, in the baskets on the table, um, and to delegate someone to count that money uh, prior to uh, Lisa from SACPAW collecting it or the other board members. I want to say for anyone who's new to this gathering that SACPAW is a volunteer nonprofit organization and one that's been in place for a long time. Uh, It relies on the contribution of members and session attendees to continue its work, so we are grateful for your uh, presence here. If you're interested in a membership with SACPA, they are available from Lisa Lambert, who's sitting at the table over here. Um, What else do I have to say? I want to thank a number of people that have long-going relationships with this Uh, group with this presentation and support us every week, to the University of Lethbridge for its support uh, in terms of distribution of of notices, to Country Kitchen Catering for a great lunch every week, I think, to Shaw TV for broadcasting the sessions. Um, We really do appreciate the ongoing support of those groups. What's going to happen today is that we're going to begin with a 25- to 30-minute presentation. We're then going to take a little bit of time for lunch, about another half hour or so. And then we're going to have about a, the same amount of time for some questions, we hope. We'll finish about 1.30 this afternoon. So that's the, the sort of technical managerial piece. Now I get to the really fun piece. I get to introduce the speaker. Her name is Jackie Chalmers. Uh, Jackie Chalmers is the founder and president of Slow Food Southern Alberta. She has intend- attended international conferences related to this, and from talking to her before the session, I can attest that she has a strong commitment to uh, helping people think and act about how we might better produce uh, good, healthy food for us, about connecting producers and consumers, and about raising our consciousness about where food comes from. Jackie herself and her family live west of Home on the new Oxley Ranch, and they raise garlic commercially. And I noticed a very large basket, thank you, of garlic cloves out there. Can people take a clove as they go? Fabulous. So without any further ado, I'm going to introduce Jackie to talk about what is the slow food movement, movement and why does it matter. Jackie, please.
0: Thank you, Muriel. I'm excited to be here, and I'm a little bit nervous, and this takes me back to when I used to do public speaking as a 4-H member, and probably the first time that I was going to have to do public speaking, I was probably 9 or 10 years old, and I was so nervous, I probably went to the bathroom 10 times. Well, I've only gone to the bathroom one time, so I think I'm making progress. So (laughs) I just see someone saying out here, that's pretty good. Someone can relate to what I'm saying. Um, what is the Slow Food Movement? It's an international, eco-gastronomic, member-supported, nonprofit organization. It was founded in 1989 by a gentleman named Carlo Petrini in Italy to counteract fast food and fast life and promote local sustainable food, good, clean, fair, We're a grassroots network linked with our international colleagues by modern technology. The Slow Food Southern Alberta Convivium was officially formed this last spring, and we have about 20 formal paid up members and about 100 people on our email list. And you're certainly welcome to talk to me later if you're interested in membership or being on our list for our different functions that we do. Our supporters are joined by the pleasure of good food and our commitment to our community and to the environment. We are a group of folks who care about what we eat, where it is grown, how it is grown, and how it got here. We believe in knowing the faces of your food. We organize activities that highlight local foods and producers. We have more than 100,000 active members in 150 countries plus and 1,300 convivia. Terra Madre was the international conference that I attended uh, in 2010, and it's held biannually in Turin, Italy. There were 2,000 food communities, inclusive of the people involved in producing and distributing food, that are closely linked to a geographic area from a historic, social, and cultural point of view. They're food communities that make quality products in a sustainable way. They were there at Terra Madre. A thousand cooks, 400 academics, a thousand students and young producers. I was chosen as a delegate. I consider it the United Nations of Food. All the sessions were translated into six languages. Some of the sessions covered... Ranged from water and natural resources, the role of local communities, to who owns seeds. <clears throat> there were 6,000 delegates. Concurrent with these sessions were tasting workshops, seminars on slow food projects, earth workshops focusing on the importance of protecting and promoting linguistic, cultural heritage, and traditional knowledge, as well as del Gusto, a trade show for food and wine aficionados held in the old Fiat factory. What does slow food do? It defends our right to pleasure. It promotes good, clean, fair food. It supports local food. To do this, we connect producers and co-producers. A co-producer is a consumer, much like yourself, who knows and understands the problems of food production, quality, economics, and processing requirements, the culinary aspect. It's not just someone who consumes. It's someone who wants to know. Part of our convivium, we educate consumers and children, we strive to protect biodiversity, and we organize events Campaigns, foster network building, and exchange. Our three tenets, simple in words, are very complex in nature. Good. Food that tastes good and gives us pleasure to eat. Clean. The food that is produced respects the environment, animal welfare, and our health. Fair. Fair accessible prices for all consumers, and just conditions and pay for small-scale producers. All of this is possible if we access our food as local as possible. Harvested when ripe, indigenous to the area, fewer food miles. I'm sure many of you are aware. The average food miles of the food that we have right now is about 1,200 miles. My garlic came from 35 miles away. This is what we have to strive to do. We have to decrease our food miles. Less transport and packaging means less pollution. Better knowledge of how it is growing. This will ensure the survival of traditional sustainable production methods and preservation and protection of the local landscape and regionality, thus helping to ensure a healthier local economy. We must think local And act global. We must reinforce and support local agriculture all over the globe. We must strive to give birth to a virtuous globalization. This all sounds doable, in a way, but here are some of the challenges. Good, clean, fair food costs more. In general, we've all come to expect cheap food. First and foremost, our labor costs are higher. We value our workers. We pay them much more than a subsistent wage. Environmental sustainability means respecting our soil and our water supply. Food produced in this manner is more labor-intensive. Chemical inputs are a Band-Aid solution for weed control and higher yield. Biodiversity and crop rotation help to keep the the soil and all its hard working microorganisms healthy in the long term and our waterways don't become polluted we must let go of the mantra that we're feeding the world we're not because of this quest which has been promoted by the multinationals we have degraded our ecoscape locally we farm from the very edges of our property no more hedgerows for small critters to live and be part of an expanded ecosystem. We drain all of our natural sponges, the sloughs, the swamps. We create a lunar style landscape for as far as the eye can see. The landscape gives full sweep to the wind. There's nothing to buffer it, they are stronger than ever before. And have been partnering in some devastating fires in southern Alberta this fall. And just as an aside, friends of mine, Tony and Karen Legault from Paradise Hill Farm, who raised tomatoes hydroponically, uh, they were victims of the fire at Nanton. Not only is the landscape burnt, it is incinerated. There is nothing left of it. It is melted to the ground. And you can't imagine until you actually go see it. Not like a prairie fire that burns along the top. It incinerated the landscape. This past spring, much of the prairie, particularly to the east of us, experienced devastating flooding. There is speculation some of the damage could have been mitigated if there were still natural sponges to soak up the water. We must let the world feed itself. Did you know that 2.4% of the population of North America is farmers? In Italy, it's 5%. But for the rest of the planet, it's 60% are farmers. What a tremendous and untapped resource. Our whole way of thinking must shift. Not only should we respect farmers for the sake of justice, but we must recognize them as intellectuals, intellectuals of the earth. They are the holders of traditional knowledge. Their voice must be heard and listened to. We must learn from their wisdom. We must marry modern science and traditional wisdom held not only by farmers, but also by women, elders, and Indigenous people. just want to tell you a short story about a, a farmer. He's passed away now, but he was an organic farmer in the St. Paul area. And his wife told me this story. He was, he was a very well-respected man, and this young neighbour came up to him and said, uh, you know, I'm thinking about becoming a farmer, and I'm just wondering where I should go to get the best education. And Victor Krapko said to him, you know what, son? The best place to get the education you're going to need to farm in this area is to head right down to the senior citizen's home before all the old farmers die. That's the traditional wisdom that we have to start learning from and respecting. Subsidies must be rethought. Currently, a small-scale producer cannot compete with a multinational. They're not on an even playing field. The corporate giants get the leg up. I can't speak to this with a great deal of knowledge, but I can share a quote with you that is very telling. U.S. Agricultural Secretary John Black told a World Trade Conference in the late 80s, the idea that developing countries should feed themselves is an anachronism from a bygone era. They could better ensure their food security by relying on U.S. agricultural products, which are available at a much lower price in most cases. The question is, why is that? Why would they undersell the local farmers? How can the local farmers make a living? How can they feed their families? Local farmers can't be undersold. They can't survive. Slow Food says no to GMOs. Agriculture is part of a living system, which includes wild fauna, the water cycle, the wind, and the reaction of microorganisms in the soil. GM crops cannot be confined to the surface of the field in which they're being cultivated. GM crops denature the role of farmers, who have always improved and selected their own seeds. GM seeds are owned by multinationals. The inputs must be purchased from the company, and once your field is contaminated with GM, you will be expected to pay royalties, even if the crop is volunteer. Farmers in Manitoba experienced that reality this past growing season, where they were expected to pay $16 an acre for volunteer canola if they harvested it. GM crops improvise impoverish biodiversity because they require large surface areas and an intensive monoculture system. When it comes to hunger, the United Nations says that family agriculture will protect the sectors of the population at risk of malnutrition. Family agriculture will feed our world. Multinationals instead promise that GMOs will feed the world. But since they began to be marketed about 15-20 years ago, The number of starving people in the world has only grown, just like the profits of the companies that produce the seeds and the inputs. Food sovereignty must be preserved for all, and an important component of that is seed sovereignty. Small farmers are losing their most precious asset, seeds. Multinational companies are patenting the most productive seeds, which impoverish the soil and require a massive use of fertilizers and pesticides plus water. Currently, multinationals hold more than 90% of the the corn and soy seeds on the market. 300,000 plant varieties have gone extinct in a century. That's a shame. Think of all the food that we're not going to get to taste. A third of all native cattle, sheep, and pig breeds are extinct or endangered. With what rapid intervention, 75% of global fish stocks are at risk of disappearing. Mexico, the country where corn was domesticated, imports 40% of its corn from the U.S. Flour is bought from the U.S. multinationals to make tortillas. Why is that? The hyperproductive system dictated by industrial agriculture and globalization has failed. It has not fed the planet but rather it has polluted it. It has destroyed the cultural identities of entire peoples and drastically reduced diversity. Modern distribution methods demand uniform foods in unlimited quantities and at low prices. We can't return to the past, but we can restart from the past. Traditional knowledge and modern science must be shared and accepted with equal value. The intellectuals of the earth and the academic intellectuals must be treated with equal dignity. Together we can work at making good, clean, fair food a reality for every person on the globe. Carlo Petrini refers to the four cylinders that are driving our world. The, in a UN report compiled by 1,400 scientists about a decade ago, it was stated that if we don't stop doing the things we are doing, the world as we know it will be extinct in 300 years. And the four cylinders that are currently driving our world are science, technology-slash-development, industry, and profit, not as a negative value Profit is good only if it is above all else and takes over politics and culture. Perhaps some of the other values we could consider solidarity, ecology, culture, traditional wisdom. Perhaps we could make a difference. And one of the, um, the closing messages at Terra Madre. Uh, was I have called this fellow Father Christmas because he was a, a big fellow with a mass of silver hair and a mass of silver beard. And uh, he told this story, and it really resonated with me, and I'd just like to share it with you. His name was Manfred Max Neif. He was an economist and environmentalist, and he shared a very powerful message. He spoke how as a boy he mused on the difference between humans and animals. His first thought was how animals couldn't love. He realized, after watching them for a time, that of course they loved. He then reflected on various human emotions over the years and realized that indeed animals did exhibit all of them to varying degrees. Finally, as a young man over breakfast one morning with his father, a highly respected German scientist, he posed the question to him, he shared how his father sat contemplating the question for quite a long time. At last, he responded by saying, The fundamental, fundamental difference between humans and animals is that animals aren't stupid. If they do something once and there are negative consequences, they don't do it again. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said for humans. I will close with the words of Slow Food founder, Carlo Petrini, um, and I encourage you to go onto YouTube and listen to some of his speeches. They're very enlightening, and, of course, he's very, very knowledgeable, and he's a very engaging fellow. He says, Slow Food shows us that pleasure and responsibility are not exclusive. In fact, it is essential that we bring them together. Everyone has a fundamental right to share the everyday joys food has to offer. And consequently, we have the responsibility to protect the heritage of food cultures that makes this pleasure possible. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Jackie, for giving us much food for thought. I'm going to encourage all of you to talk about uh, her presentation over lunch, and we'll return in about half an hour with, uh, for, with some questions for her. And I can't, I just can't resist this. The Japanese have a phrase that they use before begin, begin a meal, and it sort of sits somewhere between saying bon appetit, as the French would say, and saying grace, Um. And it's, I'm going to try it, Tad, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Ikadaki Mass. It means thank you to all of creation, with the notion being that that includes everyone, everything from the people who grow the food, through the people who prepare it, and to the moment where you're gathering around to share it. And somehow that just seems very appropriate with the notion of the slow food movement. So I wish you ikidakimasu. Have a good lunch. We'll be back in a, uh, about half an hour for questions.